Well, this is a continuation of our series this morning on Revelation Made Simple. I hope I've been able to make it simple. I'm a simple person, so if it's not simple, I usually can't explain it. But you may have a different opinion of that. I don't know. But we're going to go today through a topic called Revelations, so to say Revelations, Peacemaker. And we know that to be Jesus, but we'll, we'll look at that. Does anybody here ever get stressed? We were just up the hill here, the whole family, and uh, I had James, our youngest, on my lap, and the band was playing a number. And as the band was playing, all of a sudden, I think it was a girl, but maybe I shouldn't say a girl, maybe it was a guy, but whoever was playing the cymbals crashed them really, really good, right? I've done that before. I played cymbals for the orchestra, man. You've got to know when that crash is coming. You can't sort of know. You've got to know, and you've just got to go for it, right? I've gone for it before, too, to where instead of smacking them on an angle, I smack them together, and they go thoom together. Has anybody ever done that? Yeah, me neither. Anyway, this girl didn't do that. I think it was a girl. She went smash like that really hard, and all of a sudden, James on my lap went, whoa, like this. I mean, he just about fell off my lap, and he looks up at me like, is this okay? Are we going to die? <laughs> and I just smiled. You know, you learn as a parent that if you overreact to things, it makes things worse. Any parents ever heard that? I mean, they may ditch on their bike and blood might be falling out. But if you say, oh my goodness, then wow. But if you're like, oh, I don't see anything. It's fine. Okay. And they're fine. You just kind of dab it off. So I gave the response. No, everything's fine. Crash again. He looks at his mother. Are we okay? Are we going to die? And Elizabeth said, no, we're fine. Everything's fine. And so he was fine too. It still got his attention every time, but every time he jumped a little bit less until he was fine with that. If you were here a few weeks ago, I told a story about a little lamb who was being shocked everywhere it went in this cage as an experiment. And one of the twin lambs died, right? Because it didn't have the mother in the pen. The second lamb had the mother in the pen, kept running back to mother, and mother kept it reassuring, it's okay, it's okay. And eventually that lamb did just fine. You remember that story? Kind of the same idea, right? And all of us, I think, are very much that way. It might be a mother of yours. You may be a grown-up, but you have a mother that you run back to. It may be a father. It may be a grandparent. It may be somebody. And maybe that somebody has since passed away. And there's that time of, my goodness, who do I run to now? Because in times of stress, in times of anxiety, it sure is nice to know that you have somebody that you can run to, isn't it? I know one of the stressors for me as a student missionary, 9,000 miles away from my family, was if I get in trouble, who am I going to run to? Who am I going to swim to? I can't swim that far. Who do you run to in times of stress? Stress. See, I'm feeling a little bit of stress. Who should I run to right now? Unemployment. That can be a stress, right? How are you going to provide for your family? You weren't expecting this. Maybe you feel like you're too old to try and search for another job or to start another career, but the bills keep coming. Are we going to move out of our house? Are we going to sell the car? What are we going to do? Stress. And of course, here you have a couple looking at their finances, maybe even retirement. That can be a stress, can it? Are we saving enough for retirement? When can we retire? Can we retire at all? Marital stress. Relationship stress. That can be stressful, can't it? Are kids ever a stress to you? 
Did you have that stress this week as they were running around and yelling and screaming and jumping and you feel like you've repeated yourself a hundred times on the same thing? Stress. Maybe it's depression and you just feel overwhelmed with everything. Everything just seems dark. You feel like you're in a haze or in a cloud. Who do you run to in those times? Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a car accident. Maybe it's a a child with an illness or a sickness. Maybe it's a a parent or a grandparent. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it's what the doctor just told you this past week and you weren't expecting it at all. And now what seemed to be a pretty happy-go-lucky life is filled with stress and anxiety. Where do you go? Who do you run to when the stresses of life come? Here we have a, a man who has lost his wife and the son is trying to comfort his daddy stress. And then there are, of course, funerals. Now, sometimes if it's a life well-lived and they've lived a long life, but other funerals are not quite that pleasant. And irregardless, there's that adjustment, and that can cause stress. Who can bear our burdens? Who can handle our guilt? Guilt is another major stressor, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. And who can give us security? Who has control of the PowerPoint? You know, I have to tell you, I've had more technology issues in this past week with multiple programs and internet working at various places and and you name it. But that's okay. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we have a person that we can run to. The revelation of who? Jesus Christ. Throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus is uplifted as the one that we can run to. You know, sometimes we get so preoccupied with numbers like 666 and the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and this beast and that beast, and we can sometimes lose the precious, most precious part of the book of Revelation, and that is it's the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Christ. Revelation 1, 5, and 6 says, The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of this earth. Think about that. If death is your stress, God, Jesus, is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. He says, not even death is a problem for me. Is that good news? That's good news. Let's go to the next one. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth the all-powerful Savior. Is he all of those things? Is he the all-powerful Savior? I believe that he is. The sustainer of the world. I do believe he holds our world in place in a very real and powerful way. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, continuing on there in the first chapter of Revelation. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He washed us. He washed you. He washed me with his own blood. I believe that's significant. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's like saying the A and the Z in the Greek language. He is the beginning. He is the end. He sees everything from beginning to end. 
And so whatever, life, whatever problem in your life right now, whatever stressor is going on in your life right now, you can be rest assured he sees the beginning to the end. We just see this sliver. We just see this certain piece in time. And God sees the whole big picture. Have you ever looked back at your life and said, wow, God, you prepared me for this situation by that situation. You guided me over here to prepare me for this over there. Or you knew I would meet this person here or there or all the rest. God has a plan. Do you believe it? I believe it. No matter what your struggle is, no matter what you're going through, you don't have to be overwhelmed. You have a place to run. Jesus is pictured here as going among the fiery candlesticks. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Jesus is pictured as among and interwoven with his church. He's not separate. He's not removed. He's not somewhere else. But he's in the midst of everything going on with you and I. He is a personal God who personally cares for you. Now, it's easy to believe that for somebody else. But do you believe it for you? When you're in the valley of discouragement, does God care? Does he notice? I submit to you that he does. He hears every prayer that you pray. And he longs to help you in every situation. Revelation 12, verse 5, it says, She bore a male child, capital C, this is Christ, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. He was an overcomer. No matter what you're going through, Jesus can help you face that trial. He overcame Here we have Jesus pictured on the throne. And what is that in his hand? Let's read about it here. Here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp, what is it? Sickle. Now what do you use a sickle for? To reap and to harvest his people. He comes back to harvest his children. Isn't that good news? I tell you, there's nothing as exciting as a harvest. We went over to Miss Linda's house, and she, she carved up a piece of dirt for us, which was very kind of her, and our kids went over, and we planted potatoes and broccoli and cabbage and what else? Onions. And that's fun. But when you actually see stuff, especially some of the seeds we planted, when you start to see it come up, now that's exciting. But nothing's more exciting than when you're hungry. And you go out to that garden, and you pull up one of those fresh potatoes, or my favorite is a, is a crispy cucumber, or a ripe tomato. Anybody ever been up on the parkway, and you harvest the blueberries when they're in season? You have to catch it just right. And on a beautiful day, you can enjoy the view and the mountains over here, and you can be picking these blueberries. It's wonderful. Harvest is wonderful. And Jesus says, I'm going to come and take with my sickle. I'm going to come harvest those that are my children left here on this earth. And here we have Jesus being worshipped. He's worthy of our glory, our honor, our praise. And not only in heaven, but here on earth. He deserves those things. 
Here he's pictured on the white horse, symbolism of victory, of the conqueror, and Jesus is those things in Revelation as well. He is the victor. He is the mighty king. And here we have pictured the glorious city. Jesus sits on his throne in heaven in a glorious place called heaven. But that doesn't mean he's removed from you and I. Revelation 22 verse 12 says, I am coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. I don't know about you, but sometimes our kids, I can remember Matthew especially. I think he was probably three and a half maybe at the time. And he'd say, Dad, when's Jesus going to come? Soon, I'd say. And he'd say, but it's taking a long time. (laughs) Three and a half years he'd been waiting. It's taking a long time. But I believe that he's coming soon. And you know what? We, we never know how much time we have left here on this planet, do we? We could leave this place, and that could be it for us. Something could happen between here and home. And we may have to wait a lifetime, but Jesus has been waiting a lot longer than that. And I tell you, he is so anxious to come, but I believe he has good reason to wait. He has people on his mind. Let's continue here in the book of Revelation as we see these pictures of Jesus. He's at the beginning, he's at the end, he's throughout the book. But if we see, there's also in Revelation an attack on Jesus. In fact, Jesus is mentioned as the Lamb. I don't know about all the other things mentioned in Revelation, but I would assume that the Lamb is mentioned more times in the book of Revelation than any other word that you find there. In fact, 27 times Jesus is described as the Lamb. Because the lamb is symbolic. The lamb is what takes away the sin of the world. Revelation 5 verse 6 says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now seven horns is power, seven eyes is wisdom. He's all powerful, he's all wise, and he is our sacrifice. There are things in Revelation that are against this lamb and the praise and adoration that he is due to receive. Let's keep going. Revelation 12, verse 11, and they overcame him by two things, the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's how they overcame. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world, it says in Revelation 13, verse 8. So here you have a dragon who is making war and waging war against the Lamb. In the next picture, we have another beast with seven heads and ten horns trying to overcome and put down this Lamb. If we continue on again, we have this harlot woman sitting on and riding on another ferocious beast with a cup of indignation and full of abominations and is also after and trying to discredit and put down the Lamb of God. We even have Babylon, that great city, symbolic of those that are are pulling away from God. In fact, they're doing something against God, and that is also against the Lamb. And so you have all of these things together working against the Lamb. All of these things are trying to overcome the Lamb. All of them. But guess what? The Lamb wins. God wins. Revelation 17, 14. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will what? Overcome them. We know how the story ends. 
for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. I tell you what, if you know how the story's going to end, wouldn't it be pretty obvious that you want to be on the right side? On the good side? On God's side? On the side of the lamb? If you know the lamb is going to win? Seems like a no-brainer to me. Why would God choose a lamb to be symbolic of Christ? Let's go back. We're going to study now in our Bibles a little bit of what the Bible has to say in the Old Testament regarding the Lamb. And so we'll look at our first text there in the Old Testament. Um, Leviticus 17, verse 11. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. We find that all throughout the Old Testament, the blood. And you might be asking the question, why the blood? What is significant about the blood? And the Bible tells us, right, in this next verse, what is it in the blood? For the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of anything is in the blood. I had a shop teacher that used to say, now, you got to make sure you change your oil. I'm sorry, your what? Your oil. (laughs) Oil? Yeah, your oil. That's what I said. Oh, okay. He says, this is the lifeblood of your car. We don't take in oil the same way a car does, but our blood, that's the life blood. We refer to it that way so many times, don't we? The life is in the blood. Can you imagine after that first sin of Adam and Eve and they had to go get a lamb? Never done this before. And Jesus shows them how they have to sacrifice it for their sin how they have to kill it. For the wages of sin is death. So virtually, we're either going to bring in a sacrifice or you're going to be your own sacrifice. That's about as simple as I can put it. You can be your own sacrifice if you'd like to. There's a verse, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. If you want to be your own sacrifice, that's fine. But if you'd rather, we can bring in a substitute. And so the lamb was to teach that there is a substitute made available for you. Let's keep going. We're going to get to the Old Testament sanctuary here. Here we have it pictured, the children of Israel. And you have all the tents around. And right here in the middle, in a very organized fashion, you have the Old Testament sanctuary. And in the Old Testament sanctuary, people would come and go each and every day, and they would bring their sacrifice. What did it all mean? That's what we're going to look at. Let's suppose that you get in a fight with somebody. And maybe it's a little thing, but it's not a little thing to you at the time. You get pretty, pretty hot and pretty frustrated and see this guy here. He's like shaking his stick at you like he's going to do something special. All of a sudden, wham! You deck him one and he's on the ground. Who's in charge now? And you go back home. At first you feel proud of yourself. I showed him. And then later on you think, man, that was pretty harsh. In fact, I think, I wonder, I hope I didn't break his jaw. I hope his nose was okay. I wonder if we still can be friends. Oh, man, that wasn't right. And he's convicted of his sin. And so maybe that night, he goes to this person's house, and he says, I'm terribly sorry. See, the guy is is on his back here. He's trying to to come back to to good health. And he says, you know, I I lost it. I, I, I didn't, I made a really poor choice. I'm sorry that I hit you. You didn't deserve that at all. In fact, I was wrong in the fact that I did this and this and this and this. Will you please forgive me? 
Is that good to do? It's good to do. Is he done? Even if this guy says, yeah, I forgive you, he still has that sin that he needs to confess to somebody else. And so in the Old Testament sanctuary, he has to now bring a perfect lamb. No blemish. Meaning probably his perfect one, or his best one, I should say. And he brings it to the sanctuary, and people are filing in. And you might be sitting back thinking, oh my, I wonder what they did. Oh, they're a sinner. Oh, there's Pastor Wright. Again. I wonder what it is this time. Sure haven't seen Elizabeth go lately, huh? And then they'd have to take this lamb in. And they'd have to put their hands on the head of the lamb and confess their sin, transferring their sin to this innocent lamb. Clueless lamb. Meh. What is this? Meh. Then they pull out the knife. And because of my sin, I'd have to slit the throat of that lamb. And I'm probably holding as he's trying to fight and, and get away and all the rest. Not sure. I mean, all along he's been my pet, and now I'm slicing his throat. And now I, I feel as all this shuddering starts to wane, and they catch some of his blood, and this lamb goes limp because of what I've done, because of my poor choice, how I overreacted, how I spoke in a way that wasn't uplifting. And so then the priest would take that blood into the sanctuary, and he would sprinkle that blood on the veil between the holy place and most holy place. And he put it in different articles of the sanctuary, transferring my sin to the sanctuary. Leviticus 5, verse 5 and 6 says, And it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. And so again, they'd gather the blood and they'd go into the holy place and then the lamb would end up on this altar here on the right hand side and would be consumed and the blood would be transferred into the sanctuary and so here you have christ and you remember when john the baptist saw christ for the first time what did he say behold the lamb of god that takes away the sin of the world that's the symbolism steps to forgiveness Step one, I have to acknowledge my guilt. I can suppress it. I can push it away. I can try and marginalize it. I can say, you know what? What this person did over here, that was a whole lot worse. And they deserved it because I'm justified in the fact that we go around and around and around and around and around. But eventually, I'm going to have to acknowledge my guilt. I'm going to have to confess my sin. Then I'm going to have to accept forgiveness and believe God's promise. And I would submit to you that promise is not only for pardon, but it's for power. So I don't have to come back here and do this again and again and again and again. And he'll keep forgiving me. But he says, I have made power available to you to overcome this thing. And we'll talk more about that. The Old Testament sacrifice is pointed forward to Jesus' sacrifice. Every lamb or sacrifice pointed forward to the lamb of God. John 1 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said. The Lamb of the book of Revelation is the Lamb who still bears your and my guilt. And let me tell you, that's good news. So we have a problem. Problem number one is your past. Let's face it, even if you never sin again from this very moment forward, you would still have a problem. 
Now, what's that problem? Let's look at this. John Gacy was his name. He was a pretty horrible man. I'm a little bit reserved about how much I should tell you about him. He ended up dispatching, can I use that word, 27 different people and putting them underneath his crawl space in various places in his yard, eventually was convicted, was put on death row, and the day before, virtually one of his last words were, as God as my witness, I have not harmed anyone. He was in denial. Denial won't do. Because Romans 3.23 says, all. How many is all? Who here is exempt from all? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a problem. Problem number one, your past. We've all sinned. We've all messed up. We all need a substitute. Guilt weighs heavy on people. I was reading about one of the engineers this week that was part of the the space shuttle Challenger. And he said his group of engineers knew beforehand that this was going to be a fatal launch. And they were pleading and begging with the people above them, we can't do this. This is going to be a disaster. We think the Challenger will explode if we do this launch. And they said, no, 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 no. We're going to do it. Please don't do it. And they ended up doing it. And he's been interviewed. And he still feels incredibly guilty. I should have done more. I should have made more noise. I should have talked louder. Because he told his wife, even the night before, the the lift, he says, it's going to explode. It's going to explode. And sure enough, it did. And that guilt has weighed down him. This man's not a Christian, to my understanding. And he's been living with that guilt now for 30 years. Guilt can cause fear and distress and anxiety and sickness. In fact, a large portion of those that are in the hospital right now are there because of guilt. In one way or another, it has a way of eating us from the inside and causing a host of other things that we think are completely unrelated, but they're not unrelated. Guilt. Good works won't do it. Some have this approach that's kind of like karma or something. If I can do enough good things to weigh out the bad things, then God will look more at the good things. So it's like a scale, right? And so sometimes you even ask people, well, are you going to be in heaven? If the Lord were to come today, would would you go to heaven? I think so. And you ask him, well, how come? And largely the reason is, well, I'm a pretty good person. Doesn't have anything to do with it. I try and do the right thing. Doesn't have anything to do with it. So good works won't do. In fact, we have a verse on this one as well. Isaiah 64, verse 6. We are all like an unclean thing. There's the word all again. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So even when we do good things... Things that we're, we feel good about. He says, even those things are tainted with things that are not helpful. Maybe your motives were wrong. Maybe this was wrong. Maybe that was wrong. The best we have to offer are filthy rags. Interesting. So I need to pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I have a problem. I have a sin problem, and I need your help. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now that's good news. To be free from guilt, we must first acknowledge it. Right? We must acknowledge that there's a problem. So let's go to solution number one. Christ's righteousness on you. Now this is beautiful substitution. 
because I don't have a perfect life to offer. And I'm not sure this picture gets it just right because I think those filthy garments come off before the new one goes on. But anyway, Christ's righteousness on you, covering you. And let's look at some verses about that. Here in Zechariah 3, 3 and 4, Now Joshua was clothed with his filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to him who stood before him saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Anybody cut the grass yesterday or earlier this week, and you, you were just kind of a mess, and you had weed eater stuff all over, you had green legs, the whole thing, and you took those clothes and you just dropped them on the floor. I don't know, what do you do with them? You took them off. To, you probably didn't put your clean ones over top. You put them on the floor. The thing is... Oftentimes, we just leave them there. But Christ picks up our dirty clothes, and he puts them on, on our behalf. Let's look at another verse here, Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that is Christ, the iniquity of us all. Christ has taken on your sin. Let's look at another verse. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. And he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61, verse 10. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. He takes what I deserve and gives me what he deserves. He gives his own blood, so I don't have to give my own blood. He becomes the sacrifice, the substitute, so that I can live. He takes the crown of thorns so that I can have the crown of glory. And so if I come to Jesus and confess my sin, the burden of guilt is literally rolled away. And that is good news, my friends. You may have tight fists holding on to your guilt, and you can live like this for a long time. And your arms can become sore. That can cause a host of problems. But at some point, Jesus says, let go and give that to me. Let me take your guilt. Let me take the things that you are guilty of. Let me throw them to the depths of the sea. And we say, no, I can't do that. I can't bear to do that. And every time we say that, we're saying God's death is in vain for me. You died for nothing when it came to me. He wants us to let go, right? And give, give him those things. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There is only one who can take away our guilt, and that's Jesus Christ. That's the only one, unless you want to die for your own sins. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, the gift of God, I believe, is not only forgiveness or pardon, but it's also power. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Let's keep going. Problem number two, your future. Let's stop and think about this. Jesus died. 
lived a sinless life. He died. He was the one that was nailed on the cross. And there's another picture here of him suffering at the cross. And if, if we look at this great controversy, which we talked about this last week, Christ versus Satan or Lucifer, and this back and forth, who is fair and just and true and trying to eradicate this problem of sin once and for all. And we know that some of the angels were probably even still on the fence right up until Calvary, and they saw what the devil did to Christ. And they saw very plainly what was in the heart of the devil and what was in the heart of God. At that moment, probably more than any other moment before, were they able to see very clearly the love of Christ and the hatred of the devil. We have another problem because the problem is you and I want to go to heaven. And so let's suppose this idea we're going to eradicate sin from the universe. And so the angels now are convinced, all of them are fully convinced, even those that were partly on the fence are fully convinced that God is fair, he's just, he's true. We're going to stick with him to the bitter end. But there's these human beings I want to invite into the kingdom, and I want them to live here forever too. Wait a second. You mean the same ones that are infected with sin? That live down there on the earth? That have that virus? Yeah. I'm going to bring them up here. They're going to be your next door neighbor. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait, wait. I, I, I'm just not so sure about that because, well, you know, they, and then, and they have habits and inclination, and, and if you bring them, then they, is this a good idea? Do you see the problem? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And the angels say, I'm not so sure I feel comfortable with this. They have lived in a sinful world. They have sinful habits and sinful tendencies. And this makes me just a little bit uncomfortable. I don't want to ruin a good thing. Now the manifold wisdom of God. Now we're in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by what? The church. To the principalities, the angels, everyone on looking and watching, and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purposes which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, to whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. This verse is telling us that through Christ, not only will we be given pardon, but we'll be given power to overcome the sin in our own life. That answers problem number two, our future. Because God doesn't want us, last time I talked about uh, everybody sitting, or my son maybe sitting in an anthill, or maybe a wasp nest, or whatever else, and he's screaming and yelling, doesn't know what's going on, and I say, don't worry, son, you're not allergic, you're going to be just fine, and he continues to get bit and stung, and continues to scream, don't worry, you're going to live, you're going to make it. We don't serve a God like that. We serve a God that wants to rescue us and save us from our sin, not in our sin. Well, I can't do that. You're right. But I can do all things through who? Through Christ who gives me strength. Am I earning anything? No. I'm simply claiming the power, not just the pardon, but I'm claiming the power to live a life that glorifies God. And so in the church, as we just read, it's going to be proven to the universe 
That not only is God fair, just, and true, but he can, in the life of a human wretched sinner like you and me, he can transform our characters. He can change us into something beautiful, into his image, into his likeness. Because stop and think about it. If he can't do that, he's not God. And who's more powerful? Then Lucifer's more powerful. We should all be worshiping him because if he's the one that's more powerful that I can't overcome a sin in my life, then I'm saying Lucifer's more powerful. Isn't that true? But if I say, Lord, I can't overcome that in my own strength, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, then I can overcome. But we have all these feeble Christians walking around. Oh, that's impossible. We can't do that. That's too hard. You know, we're just going to keep on, you know, sitting in this hornet's nest until the Lord comes. Now, grand, there's going to be things in this life that we're going to have to deal with. Jesus had to deal with a lot, and he never sinned. So it's not going to be a pain-free existence. But that doesn't mean we have to keep bringing stuff on ourselves by our own stupid choices. Right? He came to save us from our sin. So solution number two, Christ's righteousness in you. First it was on you. That's the part. Now it's righteousness in you. That's the power. Let's claim some verses here. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if I abide in Christ, if I abide in the vine, I can do great things and bear much fruit. Is it because of me? No, it's because of Christ living in me. Colossians 1, 26 and 27, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't that good news? Christ in you is the hope of glory. So start claiming some of those passages. One of them I forgot to even put up here, and so I looked at it up in my Bible. Still brought my sword because you never know what PowerPoint's going to do. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is one I claim often. Because the devil comes along and says, Oh, Dave, don't you want to do this? Oh, don't you want to do that? Don't you want to go over here? And blah, 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 all this mess. And sometimes in my humanness, I want to. Is that okay for me to say? Sometimes in my humanness, I want to. But then I claim this verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Yeah, but I want to. Doesn't matter. You're dead, Dave. It's done for you. You gave it up a long time ago, and you're giving it up right now by claiming this verse. I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. My wants, my thoughts, my, all these things that you think you want, doesn't matter. You have no rights. That's what I tell myself. You have no rights. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Claim those verses. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 and 11. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Don't miss all of that. We're strong in the Lord and in his power and in his might. And it says, put on the whole armor of me. Is that what it says? No, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Over and over and over again, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ, and everything that he can do for you so that you may be able to, well, just fall over. There's nothing else we can do anyway. No, that you may be able to stand 
against the wiles of the devil. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you. How many temptations? None? No? Zero? Zip? Zilch? No temptation has overtaken you, except it is common to man, but God is faithful. You don't have to be faithful. God is faithful. You just have to put your will on the side of Christ and crucify self. No temptation is overtaking you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. We don't like to claim that verse. We like to claim a verse that we made up in our own head that says, this is a temptation that's too difficult for me to handle, and there's no way of escape, so I just have to give in. It's not what this verse says. Philippians 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he, who's the he? Christ. That he, Christ, Jesus, who began a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm not so sure that the completion part is so much my problem, or so much my issue or my stress, as much as putting my will on the side of Christ each and every day. And praying the prayer, saying, Lord, I want you to be in control today. Crucify me again today. You take over today. You will be done today. Help me to overcome and and empower me to live for you, for your honor and for your glory today. And the completion part? Who's going to do it? He'll be the one to do it. He'll be the one to complete it. I just continually submit myself. Make myself available. I read his word. I I continue to to pray and and to feast on all the good things. And I allow God to do something in me that I can't do for myself. Does that make sense? 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Do you want to have confidence when he comes? Confidence in self? No. Confidence in who? Christ. Abide in him that when he appears, you may be confident. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, friends, that's not fair. It's not fair. How do we get what he deserves? And we give him what we deserve. But he does it. No greater love than this, than one that lays down his life for his friend. And so, what's our first problem? Our past. We've all sinned, we all fall short. But God says, I've made provision for that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He overcomes my first problem. And that was the first solution. But then I have a problem with the future. And he says, I don't just offer you pardon, I offer you power. And we need to claim those promises. We need to claim that power that he wants us to claim in the name of Jesus Christ. That we won't keep wallowing in that sin forever. He wants. Do you believe God wants to give you the victory? I believe God longs to give you the victory. And if you look back, there are chapters in your life and things in your life you thought you'd never be able to overcome. But at some point down the line, as you continue to seek the Lord, as you continue to 
to feed on his word and spend time in prayer each and every day, there comes a point in time where you look back and you say, you know what? I haven't been tempted by that in a long time. The Lord has delivered me from that. And he wants to do that not just with that, but with this. And eventually that will be that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sin. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is powerful. And Lord, you did something for us that we do not deserve. We can't even comprehend or understand what you have done for us. You came to this earth as a baby and you grew up and you healed the eyes of the blind. You unstopped the ears of the deaf. You smiled and brought comfort and hope to so many. And everyone thought that you were going to be the next king. You were going to deliver your people from the Romans, but they missed, we missed entirely what you were here to do. You came to be that Lamb of God to take away our sin, my sin, and to offer to us through your perfect and sinless life your perfect robe, the robe of Christ's righteousness. That when the accuser of the brethren points at us, he can't say anything about us. He can only say things about you. And your life was perfect. It was sinless. And so today, we simply want to say, Lord, yes, give us your robe of righteousness. Take off our filthy garments. And not only grant us pardon, but give us power from on high to meet the wiles of the devil, because he's angry, he's frustrated, he's upset, and he targets us at every single angle to discourage us, to bring us down. But Lord, we claim your pardon and your power. We believe that you are more powerful than anything the devil can ever throw at us. And so today, Lord, we not only have hope that you have taken our place, but we have hope that we don't have to stay and wallow in this sin forever. You have provided a way for we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And so we claim you today in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.